0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Good to have you. Aboard the program on this Wednesday, December 7th, 2022. We are just a couple of weeks away from Christmas, believe it or not. If you don't celebrate Christmas, I apologize for that microaggression. I don't actually apologize for the microaggression, but I feel you have to preface like any reference to the uh, any holiday whatsoever now with that, just in case. So... It's good to have you tuned in. Uh, We have some breaking news out of Iran today. The Iranian regime intends to freeze the bank accounts of women without hijabs. Now, this was first reported in a Farsi publication called uh, Farda, and it's been picked up by a couple of English language outlets around the world now. And you read this. And the, the first thing I thought of is, man, I would love to see one of those legacy media journalists ask Justin Trudeau or Christian Freeland to condemn this. I would love to see Justin Trudeau or Christian Freeland get up there and say, oh, this is terrible. Yeah, the fact that people in Iran are having their bank accounts frozen because they dare to go against the mullahocracy." I am not comparing the Canadian regime to the Iranian regime. I'm not comparing uh, the two things here. They're very different situations. Uh, situations. Situations. But when you look at some of the themes that exist in the tactics governments use to quell dissent, it's literally an idea. It's not even similar. It's literally an identical move to what happened with the Emergencies Act. And it actually ties in very well with a discussion I wanted to have today with Benjamin Dichter, who is the author of a new book called Honking for Freedom, the trucker convoy that gave us hope. Now, for obvious reasons, I've got a bit of a soft spot for books about the convoy. I wrote one of my own, but it was written from more of a third-party view, certainly my own experiences and interviews, uh, but I wasn't a member of this protest like Benjamin Dichter was, who joins me now. Uh, Ben, it's good to talk to you, sir. Thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Likewise, it's good to see you too. How are you? Good,
0: good. Thank you very much, and congratulations on the book, by the way. I, I know it's it's difficult to, uh, not just to like sit down and write, and I know you worked with John Goddard, who's a, a very experienced uh, writer, but it's also difficult to, as in my experience anyway, and you can tell me if this was the same for you as well, to like have to make the decision of when to just call it? Because there's so much. I mean, there was so much to this movement. And at a certain point, you can't publish 7,000 words or 7,000 pages. You've just got to pick the main story and go with it.
1: Yeah, that was a significant challenge. And, uh, you know, yeah, we could have had Canada's equivalent to war and peace. <laughs> but I wanted it to appeal to a broad range of readers and maybe people who are not readers. I didn't want it just to be for academics. There were so many good and positive outcomes from the Freedom Convoy. It was it was a lovely moment in Canadian history. And I thought, let's focus on that. Let's fo- focus on the good stories and let's make it concise so people can get a broad sense of what it is. I have a stack, bjdictor.substack.com, where I expand on stuff a little bit. I released another article today on my episode in the hospital. Uh, So that's where all the the additional nuance will come. But the book itself, we wanted to keep it concise. And thank God for John Goddard. The very short version of this story was we had been going together for coffee every Saturday morning for several years. And uh, I was thinking after the convoy, this has got to be a book. If only I knew an experienced investigative journalist who is a published author that I could reach out to to teach me how to write a book, and I thought, oh well, I spent every Saturday morning with them. Let's do it. And uh, John agreed. And this is uh, this was the result. Right here. I, I sh- I should just say for
0: people that aren't aware of this, and I, I brought it up when we've spoken in the past on the show, you and I yeah. have known each other since years before the convoy. We've crossed paths just in, in political circles in the past, and I had no idea through any of that that you had picked up this side business as a trucker. So when you sort of just popped up in the midst of this thing after the the convoy and the GoFundMe had started out, and I see your name on there, and I'm like, how the heck did like Dictor get wound up in this? And you talk about that in the book, and, and you and I have spoken about it, but for for people that aren't as familiar with that story, how did that initial invitation from Tamara Leach come about?
1: Okay, well, first, with the, the trucking is, is one other thing. So my, uh, my brother, who is uh, about to retire as a police officer, my biological brother, by the way, uh, he reached out to me a few years ago and said, hey, listen, why don't we, why don't you get your trucking license? I said, what are you, crazy? He says, no, 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 I'm going to retire Maybe we can do a business together or we can just go to the, um, across the U.S. because we just met each other a few years ago, right? And uh, I wasn't convinced. And then he kind of, over a month or so, convinced me to get my trucking license. And lo and behold, COVID happened. And while I was going through this whole training period and learning part-time how to drive a truck, how it all operates and you know, all that sort of stuff, he said to me, listen, why don't we just get, he had bought a truck already, and he said to me, let's get a second truck. He'll come with me to uh, the States. We'll do tandem runs when we can, when you have time, and just get away from the madness, is that's really was the motivating factor behind it, and what that's why I saw throughout the entire COVID era, the stark difference between the United States and Canada, and that's just from going to New York State, New Jersey, like it was a completely different world, and when we crossed over the border into Canada. It's been like a twilight zone, and that's why I was able to comment on that. And in terms of Tamara Leach, uh, this is one of those things that, you know, the planets are just coming to alignment. We had been friends for several years, so three, four years at that point, maybe five, I don't remember exactly. And we would talk regularly. We'd talk every couple of weeks, every month. Every, it depends on how busy her schedule and my schedule were. But we became very good friends. And she just called me on January 15th and said, hey, listen, uh, we started this GoFundMe for this convoy and it's taking over. And she said, you know, I I need somebody who can help that understands media, new media. Uh, I've been media trained in the past. I break all the rules. That's why. But um, and she said, would you mind doing it? We need to press releases, a spokesperson, all that sort of stuff. And I said, yeah, for you, my pleasure, because I was completely um, mortified by the ArriveCAN data tracking app and what it was going to lead to. So uh, I came on board. And then I said during that conversation, I was actually in my truck. And I said, by the way, Tamara, I don't know if you can hear. I'm in my truck right now. And she said to me, get out. What do you mean? And I explained what I just told you. And she knew the model of truck that I had because her her parents have a pilot company. And just kind of everything worked out perfectly. It was amazing. Now, did you
0: know at that time how big this thing you were getting involved with was? Or did you have an inkling it was going to be big? Because at the time, people saw it was gaining steam. But you and I have also seen various loose conservative movements pop up and kind of dissipate
1: right away. This has happened time and time again. Uh, yeah, so it's difficult. You know, we, did we know that it would get to the point where there would be 30 plus convos in 30 plus countries? And tens of millions of dollars coming in? uh, No. Who would have anticipated that? At the same time, she asked me, she said, you know, we want to get as much attention on this as possible. And I said, all right, how much attention do you want? I know a lot of people in alternative media. I know a lot of people that I keep quiet about my relationships with who I reach out that would help. And she said, let's just go as big as we can. We're fed up. The West is dying, and we got to do something. And I also knew that it couldn't just be – A conservative movement like yeah it was the base of it because it came out of the West but we had to figure out messaging that would be inclusive of everybody and I think we were successful in that that was why we uh, we 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 went along with these messaging of peace love unity and freedom whether you're anti-vax you're pro-vax you want don't understand the vax doesn't matter you have a home amongst those of us who just want all of our freedoms and you may have seen I think you were outside when i came outside of my testimony there was a woman who's been there for the whole testimony she sees me and it's oh it's benji the terrorist benji's a ter- hong kong the terrorist, terrorist 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 and i went up to her i grabbed my instagram and i flipped it around and i said the freedom convoy protected her speech as well as the truck speech be allowed to say whatever she wants she's probably a lovely person maybe a little maybe a little confused in my mind's but that was the essence of the movement it was for everybody
0: i i, I so i don't know if she is a lovely person i actually tried <laughs> I to do an interview with her at one time Ah, uh, mm-hmm. because I genuinely believe, you know, she has a right to be there. And I wanted to hear what she had to say about it. And I went up very politely, asked it, and then she just told me to go f myself. But um the <laughs> pleb on Twitter has had better luck. He, at the end, had a little bit of like a, a budding romance with her, I think. So yeah you, uh, you know did take he, he put it, he played the long game there. But I, I agree with your point there. And I actually want to talk about the famous media strategy here because uh, this just infuriated so many of the legacy <laughs> media types in Ottawa. You had that first press conference on the Sunday, and you invited only independent media outlets and journalists that you knew to be independent in their thinking, Rupa Subramanya at the time with the National Post. And I was there, Kian Bextie with Rebel. You had people from the Epic Times. You had uh, people from the National Telegraph. You had a, a ragtag group, not pictured, Global News, CTV, CBC, the Toronto yeah. Star. And... I think this remains, and when I, I know you read my book, so some of the people, uh, including Dagny Polak, who was one of the other uh, folks on your media team, had sort of said, in retrospect, they weren't sure if that was the best way to do it. And I was wondering, do you still stand by that, that the decision to exclude legacy media from those that access was correct? Uh,
1: yes, and so much so that uh, last Last month, the last conversation I had with uh, Jordan Peterson, I know, we, we spoke a lot over the past couple of months. He explained to me that, because he's been in communications, he doesn't really get involved in the party politics, but he'll speak with anybody. And uh, he said to me, you know, your, your media strategy was so successful that uh, Pierre Polyev's campaign and the Conservatives have decided to do the same thing. And he gave me some specific examples of mainstream media shows that he's gone on, that there was a 0% increase in book sales when he was doing his book promotion. So hmm. what does that mean? It means he's always watching them. And then the next day, an example that he gave me, he went on a podcast that was fairly well-known, not, not terribly popular, but the book sales spiked uh, significantly the next day. And it goes to show what I've been trying to tell the Conservative Party for now four years – Ignore legacy media. Nobody's watching it. The only people who are watching it are one of the subsects or the groups who are at home cooking for their kids. They're half paying attention to what's going on on the TV in the background. And they'll notice something for 30 seconds and move on. Media has changed. Joe Rogan has three-hour-long podcasts, and it's the largest audience in all of media. It's because people want to hear individuals in their full context. And that's what I did with you and everybody else at the press conference. I said, we're going to do independent media and we're going to be here for as long as you want. And that ended up being two hours and 20 minutes, if I, remember, uh, if I remember correctly. But a little asterisk after that was I was a little disappointed because after that meeting, I think you were still in the room or you had just left the room. I got a call from Alexa at Rebel Media. And she said, we missed the press conference. We had a miscommunication because I had emailed Ezra and said, we're doing it. You want to come? like, come. So there's a miscommunication. Alexa, Lincoln, and Mocha showed up. I said, be here in 10 minutes. Chris has already left, but Tamara and I are here. Tamara and I will stay and we'll do an narrative for you guys because I figured I'm going to kill multiple birds with one stone. I'll be able to get ahead of the legacy media narrative. They'll be able to hear us in our full context. I got the impression that Rebel News was at least supportive of the idea that everybody has the right to protest. So it was perfect. So we ended up doing 50 or 51 minutes just Tamara and myself. Now, my inbox was overloaded. I had tens of thousands of messages coming in. I-24, DW, ABC Australia, BBC, every news outlet in multiple countries, although is the biggest story on the planet. I gave the exclusive interview to Rebel News and spiked it. I called Alexa that night. I said, what's happening? She's all excited. I'm going to translate it and I'll put it in French and we'll get it to Quebec. I said, great. Uh, the next morning, nothing. I followed up with her. Where is it? We're still waiting for approval. Waiting for approval. It's the biggest news story in the world and then what happened uh, later on in the day what happened alexa i don't know i don't know and after two three days you know i was scheduling you know meetings like crazy i was doing interview after interview after interview focusing on u.s media and that interview never aired although when jim Calaharios, my lawyer came out of testimony there was um he was interviewed by uh, william from rebel and they put together a little video and spliced in some B-roll, I guess, from that interview with myself and Tamara. So it never aired. I don't understand why they still haven't aired it. It just... Um, mm. and listen, I don't know their production schedule. I don't know how it all works, but it just... it's the biggest news story on the planet. How do you not air it? I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and I I wasn't even
0: aware that had taken place. That there was sort of a bonus press conference after the press conference with with Rebel, but. Even so, you kind of kept that approach up until the very end. I know there was that famous video of Glenn McGregor basically being asked to leave the, <laughs> I think it was the Sheridan Hotel uh, hallway because yeah. uh, there was another one of these things taking place there. And Punch,
1: Punchy <laughs> McGregor, that's my name for him, Punchy McGregor. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah. I
0: guess the, the interesting thing that that I would raise about this is that when the media was misrepresenting the convoy, and you weren't talking to them to correct the record. You had said something when I interviewed you for my, my book many months ago that, that you really wanted to expose them, that you really wanted people to see exactly what they were all about. And I, was that part of the convoy, or was that your own personal project, if, if you will?
1: Well, the way we had structured it was we had you know three hotels. There were different teams that were in, responsible for different things and we had we kept having every day there were people that were calling their own press conferences and uh you know tara tried to explain to everybody repeatedly all messages goes through the media team benjamin's run the media team so if you want to do any messages any press releases whatever go to him make sure him and the team vetted because there was there was four of us actually and that was the structure that we had because if not it could have been just chaos. And you saw what happened when some people that really didn't speak on behalf of the convoy but wanted their 15 minutes in fame, uh, well, they got in front of a camera and confused uh, the narrative amongst the public. The other reason that I wanted to f- to freeze out legacy media was I saw what happened during January 6th, right? So the, jan- the media in the States, the legacy media, took a, p- a certain position, a certain narrative. And what did they do? They run B-roll after B-roll after B-roll after B-roll, targeting and smearing the participants, irrespective of whether you agree with what they did or not, okay? I did not want them to have their, um, their own exclusive footage so they could run these B-rolls and attacking Tamara and myself in perpetuity forever, right? And I knew if they didn't have any interviews one-on-one with us, then I would, uh, I would limit them in terms of their intellectual property they would use against us. And the post-millennial actually confirmed that because they said once they were, they were all chuckling apparently in their office because uh, one of the press conferences, I think it might have been the second one, uh, they were laughing that the CTV, CBC, all the mainstream media had to log on to the post-millennial feed and start sharing it online because they didn't have their own access to it. So that's exactly what Yeah, and right. I, I so think Global ended stress. up
0: stealing he and Bextie's footage or something. That's and right. ended up there was a controversy about that, if memory serves.
1: Exactly. So I was, to, I was trying to doubly help alternative media. And that's why I gave the example with Rebel News. I was confused because they had the exclusive footage. Like, they could have been, I would have, it should have been one of the biggest videos in the history of that company. Like, it was just perplexing to me. Let's talk about the
0: competing press conferences, and, and I guess the people jockeying to be the ones seen as in charge here, because I know this was a, a big issue. I was getting invitations to things that were presented to me as being a quote-unquote official, although we'll, we'll talk about the complexities of that term, and then I'd yeah. send you a message, you are know, like, this is the first time hearing about it, what? And That's right. I know this was, like constantly something you had to grapple with here but at the same time I mean one of the things that uh, Tamara has testified to and other people involved in the convoy have tested to is that this wasn't a a I mean I know there was the board uh, formed for Freedom Corp but this wasn't a a hierarchical top-down organization no one had any real leverage or control over others so it was very difficult to uh, for, for anyone to say that anyone wasn't involved so when you get someone popping up that says you know yes I'm doing this thing here and and they're available to media the media is obviously going to to pounce on that but i guess the question is in an organic grassroots movement how can you effectively or do you believe you did effectively put out all of these what you would say are fires
1: or however you want to describe them well there's two different uh, levels to this strategy so one was having like a a cohesive message around peace love unity and freedom that would go on the press releases and um, that would be for legacy media and media and yourself. I think you're more cre- you're more mainstream than legacy media, to be entirely honest. But like yourself and your company and other companies, to contact representatives of the people who had the largest moral persuasion. Who are those people? The people who all, who fundraised the ten million dollars. That's why I was getting so many requests initially because it was my name and Tamara's name uh, on the GoFundMe, right? So that's where the moral persuasion came from. But then on the other side, I suggested to many of the road captains and truckers, I said, listen, got here, you guys were all on TikTok. I don't know why you're using TikTok because I don't like the Arrive Can app, but whatever. You want to use TikTok, that's great. Go out and sell the message to your audience. Go on TikTok, use it all day long, get as many people as possible, or Instagram, which I suggested instead. And so that was kind of the 2 pronged approach that – When it came to because we knew there's be legal implications, right? Especially with this around this amount of money, so there had to be some sort of loose legal structure organization around it. But then everybody else could do their own thing at the same time. Just, I said to them, just try to keep it nice. Just don't say, don't. don't, Yeah, I, I know you don't like Trudeau, but let's let's dial it down a little bit. And I think for the most part they did, and it was successful. So I was looking. A little bit towards you know how bitcoin works which is a a decentralized mechanism and i looked at the process in terms of okay we have all these decentralized nodes those are all the different groups that brought 300 people there 200 people a thousand people there whatever we'll broadcast a broader message for everybody and uh, everybody will kind of will figure out a way to support each other for the most part it worked. There was a little friction from one of the, because we had so many organizations try, trying to take over, like big, well-funded organizations. And one of them, they were very uh, anti-COVID vaccines. And I said, listen, great, but we need to get people who are supporting COVID vaccines to support us as well. We need to brought, to cast a wide net. And if we can bring them in, then guess what? You'll be able to talk to them and persuade them and, conf- and, and convince them. So if we do that strategy, why don't you, your organization, which already functions, it already brand, already have a following, we will say we're, you're here and the Freedom Convoy supports your organization. You support the right for, for truckers to come protest. And for the people who are interested in that message, they'll gravitate towards you. But we'll be able to cast a broader net to people who normally wouldn't listen. And I remember the first day I'm walking up to parliament hill in front of the chateau laurier and i've said in many interviews my inspiration for this was i went back to my days uh going to grateful dead concerts and going to fish concerts and the Allman brothers very peaceful loving party too much drugs for me but other than the drugs it was it was a great environment and you know one of the first few uh, people i saw was a group of people with tie-dye and peace signs and we love everybody and those were not conservatives but they were Canadians and they were happy to finally be out of their home and meet new people. And this was, I know of two COVID babies, uh, sorry, hmm. convoy babies that have been born in the past uh, month and a half. So it's been wonderful. It is. And, and,
0: Let's talk about some of the friction there, because I, I think that there were obviously signs of this earlier on. And certainly when you testified before the Public Order Emergency Commission, this became more apparent. And, you know, just to to set the stage here in the early days, I think it's pretty much uncontested that you had uh, Bridget Belton and Chris Barber get linked up on TikTok, build a little bit of momentum. People like Pat King was involved in the sense of promoting it early on. James Bodder tried to be uh, a bit more of a central organizer. James and Pat effectively out of the picture by the time the convoy gets to Ottawa. You've yeah. got other people that are brought in. Uh, you're certainly uh, at the helm of, of media here. And there's there were still, though, even after those changes, mm. some, some friction. I mean, you testified to... Uh, the, the breakdown with Tom Marazzo at one point saying he wanted to be a ghost and then holding that uh, press conference, which I've, I've talked to Tom about, and, and I, I accept it at face value that what he was accused of saying was not what he's saying. But you've actually gone further and, and have used the word sabotage with, with Tom and also with, with Keith Wilson, the lawyer that the JCCF retained. And at what point did that view emerge in your view and, and why? <clears throat>
1: It was an evolution. Like things were really unsettling in the beginning. Um, On February 4th, and you have to understand the context of the messaging. It was peace, love, everybody come together, right? Uh, Yeah, there were some people who did the F Trudeau flags, (laughs) which was the messaging that ironically united people from Quebec and Alberta. Like they loved it. They were having a blast with it. It was great. Uh, But our messaging was all positive. And then on February 4th, I'm in my hotel room at the Sheridan because we were all in, in hotels right next to each other. The Swiss was a little bit farther, but the Ark and the Sheridan were one street across from each other, basically, within walking distance. That's why I saw each other all the time. And somebody comes in. I don't remember who came into my uh, hotel room because it was, it was constantly in flux, so many people coming in and out. Somebody comes in and says, you're not going to believe what the lawyers just did. And I said, what lawyer (laughs) what are you talking about i'd met one lawyer private previously that was setting up uh, the corporation i think that was team if i'm not mistaken that's the name and the lawyers just went on and did a doom and gloom video on twitter and it's going viral and i'm like oh my god what what was so they the person i can't remember what it was really uh showed me the twitter message and uh just got so i wanted to rip somebody's throat out because that's the exact opposite that's that's what pat king was doing and this is keith
0: wilson's your freedoms are under attack video
1: your freedoms are under attack that's not peace love and unity who told him to talk right where do you come from uh so i went over to the uh the ark hotel and i was far more aggressive than i depict in book um, but uh, just to explain that, what do, you just undid everything that I've been working on since January 15th. Who let you talk? And is, who, is that BJ? I'm like, yeah, that's BJ. Who let you talk? And it was just from there on, there was, um, there was it was always a challenge. There was always friction. You know, they, they came in and said, well, congratulations, you have a $5 million class action suit. For what? What are you talking about? This is what happened, but it's okay because we're here. We're going to uh, do your legal work for free. Uh, okay, so we're all kind of in the room. To, there were so many fires to put out. And it was convincing that, oh, we're going to help you and whatever. Okay, what do you guys think? Everybody thought the same thing. Fine, and uh, that's what really started. But then that was for to represent us in the class action suit. But then all of a sudden, we're getting dictated to... You know, a couple of days later, oh, we need to meet with the city. I remember the first time I heard of this stupid idea. And I said, why would you meet with the city? No, you're not meeting with the city. The city hasn't come back to come to us yet. They told us where to park. Just relax and cool your jets. I didn't know at that time until the hearing that they already had been speaking to the city. So Morazzo and Keith and Dean French. So Marazzo said he came uh, that Randy Hillier. Uh, told on your show, he said, Randy Hillier uh, called me and told me to come. So Randy Hillier's buddy, Moretzo, Keith, whoever he linked to, and Dean French, Doug Ford's still very good friend, all of a sudden start negotiating with the city. Well, they weren't negotiating about half of any truckers. They might have been negotiating about half of Doug Ford. And it was just frustrating to see that evolve. But we didn't know that was happening until several days later, after they started talking to the city and it just kept being like they don't understand uh the client solicitor relationship it's like no 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 we tell you what to do thank you for helping us uh come to us and we'll tell you what to do and it was just it was constant it would and you know when i me and tamara we were always in sync with each other but tamara she's a wonderful person and she she does not like she knows everybody's got a good heart so she's trying to accommodate everybody especially then when so many people were threatening her Oh, we're gonna sue you for a hundred thousand dollars, and everybody was after the money. So she was put in a very, very difficult position, and you know, so she got very weary of saying no to people because anybody she would say no to would threaten to sue her. So that was my job. So she would call me and say, "This person, whatever." Anyways,
0: um, but, and, and that...
1: with... go, go ahead. Yeah. So and with this case as well, it seemed to be there was a consorted effort. To go out of their way to, because every day, you know, me and Tamara talk like 20 times a day. And constantly she would call me and say, what do you think about this idea? No, I don't think that's a good idea because. And she said, oh yeah, that's a good point. Okay, no problem. And that, that's how we worked. We were always sympathetic the whole time. But there were people that were, uh, they seemed to be trying to work Tamara, for lack of a better term. And and that's why I suggested to her, we need to get you a handler. Uh, but that's she's a very one-on-one emotional person who connects with people. She didn't want to handle her. And, uh, okay, so it is what it is.
0: But... Let, let's drill down into this a bit more because I, I yeah. know that you had a very collegial relationship with Tamara. And I, I, don't think, I, I don't think you would say, and I certainly wouldn't say that you were working for her in any uh, meaningful capacity, but she was the president of this entity that had been set up. She was the pre- president of what's called Freedom Corp. And I know she's precluded by bail conditions from having conversations with you along with other people. Uh, so I, I don't know what, if any, your relationship is with Tamara now. But I do know that Tamara is still... Uh, it seems like very tight with Keith Wilson and, and Tom Arazzo. So was that not a, a choice that she was making as the spiritual leader of the convoy, that that was the direction she wanted to go and, and not the approach that you're putting forward?
1: Well, so for example, when we registered the corporation, she was to be present. I was supposed to be the vice president. And I said, okay, fine, go ahead and do it. Cause we were both, you know, it was our combination of messages. You were the two most public faces of
0: this thing, absolutely.
1: That's right. That's right. And so I'm back to the Sheridan. I had, I think, um, I think it was Newsmax. I was doing an interview that night, if I'm not mistaken, and I had to cancel when I broke my ankle. And um, the next thing I know, the next day is I, next day or two days later, I find out, oh, you're not the vice president. You're something else. Somebody, you know, kicked me to the curb amongst uh, the legal entities that were advising. Eh, whatever. I really care. It didn't make a difference uh, to me, sort of thing. But you know, what I also indicated is Tamara and Barbara and two are both in a very difficult position because they've been put into, into a position where they were not told none of us were told, that on February 17th, we could have applied uh, to the court to have a percentage of the money that was donated and put in escrow, that that money, we could have applied to have that released. For the purpose of a legal defense, we were not told that. Um, I found this the night before I testified in uh, in Ottawa, so you can imagine how uh, annoyed I was to learn that so late in the game. So their position now, because they were not told they could apply to have for, pers- for the purpose of legal representation, that they're now beholden to the one organization that's funneling. All donations into it, and it's interesting that that money—the 1.7 million dollars that they've raised since the convoy—they uh, seem to be strategizing to use the escrow money, not using the 1.7 million. And the rest of us have nothing. You know, uh, Chris was thrown off the board. I was thrown that, off. That's the Chris board. Guerra,
0: correct? Of adopted Chris was thrown
1: off the board. Uh, Chad Eros thrown off the board so 50% of the board over time through some legal wrangling and anybody who's been on a board knows how that works when there's certain entities who have other interests in this case I think it was political interests that they had us kicked off the board and now we're all left hanging uh, so nope. it's it's concerning what's going on
0: I, I just want to jump into that because i know originally when you and i have spoken in the past yeah. you, you've had some criticisms not I, I wouldn't say very serious ones but, but just trucker. criticisms about chad
1: and
0: about chris Guerra. so how do you end up aligned? how did you end up aligned with them on the legal uh, fight that you're in now
1: Say, say that again. I missed the first half of your question. I yeah.
0: Was... So I, I just, you've been critical in the past of Chad uh, Eros and Chris Guerra. And now you seem to be on, on side, at least with each other, for the legal fight. And I was just wondering how that evolution happened.
1: Chris Guerra, I was never at odds with. We, uh, we never had any sort of. Uh, Chad, during the. It's interesting. Like people are trying to binary one or the other. You know, Chad and us had friction, just like any board of people who have the world's attention on them don't know what to do and are trying to navigate this this thing and your government's attacking you it's just a stre- it's a stressful situation um but chad and, you know when i broke my ankle and they they carried me onto the the couch of the ark hotel the first two people that came and sat around me and the, uh, were were bridget and chad and chad sat with me the longest like i felt bad i'm like chad you know you don't have to stay all this time like you can if you have other stuff to do and this is somebody we were just having friction with an hour before because you know what we can resolve our differences we can have differences on strategy what to do what to do moving forward but uh, when things push came to shove when things were serious like we're all sympathetic though so that was another narrative that came out of nowhere from my perspective that we were we're all there was all this friction no it it was just a lot of stress that we were dealing with so let, let's apply what you
0: just said there to the discussion that we've been having for the last few minutes. Why, yeah. why do you make the claim of sabotage? Why is it not just that there are a bunch of different strategies on the table about how to handle this? There's the JCCF view, there's your view, there, you know, maybe other people with their own. Why, why do you, why, why, let me ask it a different way. Do you assume that there is people, there is a, a case of bad faith here? And if so, why?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I was, you know, the once we signed this legal retainer for the class action suit, I started getting, you know, demands from John Carpe saying, say this, go to this point person for messaging. I'm like, okay, I don't know who this guy is. Thank you for the legal representation in the class action suit. But nobody invo- invited you here to speak. And in fact, I had somebody who uh, is, is quite famous, uh, who knows uh, the JCCA, who called me. And said, You know, I saw the JCCF is involved in the freedom convoy. Is that true? And I said, Yeah, tell me more. And this person said to me, Stay away from them, whatever you do. And I said, Why? I thought they have a good reputation. And I was, I was, I was explained to me that all of their good lawyers that they had have left. Uh, as we all know, famously, a couple of years ago, a little thing happened Barbara Kay left, Bruce Party left. And since then, they don't have any lawyers. They just have activists. And I thought to myself, well, that's the language of the people that I've been meeting who claim to be representing us legally. So that was kind of a, a red flag in, uh, in the back of my head. Um, in terms of, you know, the uh, strategy, like the, Tom Marazzo was, I remember when I met him the first time, he said uh, on the, I think it was the fourth or no, maybe it was the fifth. I, I can't remember. In that week, fourth, fifth or sixth, one of those days. And he, um, when he said, I'm, gonna, I'm a ghost. I'm, I'm, nobody's going to know I was ever he- I'm going to be here and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, okay, great, great, perfect. So I said, I'm going to deal with messaging with my team. You can go look at some trucks or whatever that is. But I remember thinking, and I said this in my testimony, you're going to deal with logistics. What logistics? Like the trucks are parked. The government and the, the law enforcement trying to figure out what to do. Chief slowly had already told us said publicly that this required a political solution, doesn't require a policing solution, we were golden. Then all of a sudden, these people show up, linked to Doug Ford through Dean French's office, and then, boom, all of a sudden, the tone changed. And part of it was, you know, they they know from having a brother in policing very high up, his mood and behavior. That's why I lost my mind on Keith, because he completely changed the mood and behavior based on what we were trying to communicate to policing. So if you add all of that stuff up and the fact that all of a sudden, you know, I remember when they said, we're going to, you know, move some trucks I said, no, you're not leave the trucks. And everybody on the board, you know, there was not regular board meetings. That's why when uh, diverge media asked Keith, if there were all these board meetings, send me the minutes. There was one board meeting and he took the minute from Keith from, from, uh, Keith took the minutes from Chad, apparently. Chad can explain to this to you better. And Diverge Media asked, and said, okay, well, can you give us the, the minutes for the meeting? And then he refused to answer and then threatened, uh, asked them if they have a lawyer. So that's the kind of nonsense that we were dealing with constantly. Amongst a thousand other fires to put out. Like this was such a small, minute detail that when we suggested leave the trucks... It was kind of over. And you know, I, I, I kind of insinuated. I went back to Keith a couple of times, just kind of joking and make funny fun of him. And I said to him, We didn't call it a deal, by the way. I never heard that deal, that word till August, so I misspoke in my testimony. But I did say to him, So, how is everything going with the city? And he kept saying, Not good. Okay, good. So I was right. That's kind of how I interpreted it. And I didn't see any other indicator to that. So much of this narrative that started in August was birthed in August and is retroactively trying to rewrite history, and it's it's really frustrating. I know one of the
0: biggest criticisms you faced, and I, I've seen it a couple of times in our uh, live chat here, just uh, scrolling by, is your oh. decision to get out of Ottawa when the crackdown was happening. Now, as it turned out, you hadn't actually left the city, but you had left the red zone. And I, I just wanted to give you an opportunity. You go into it in the book very early on, and I just wanted to give you the opportunity to explain that to people, because I know that's something that still is, is brought up.
1: Yeah, and I also, we did an interview, myself and Jim Kalaharios, with Sheila gunn and explained all of her questions and didn't shy away from anything. And this was one of them. This is the, one of the smears. So on February 18th, the road captains came to my hotel room in the Sheridan, because both media room and the hotel room, two suites. And uh, they they came in because uh, Tamara was arrested. Chris was arrested. There seemed to be a vacuum in decision-making. And so naturally they came to me because they saw me and Tamara probably had the closest relationship. And by the way, I love that woman. I really do. And I still do. And our friendship has not been affected. It's been difficult I'm sure, for her as well that we've been unable to talk. This is the longest we've ever gone without speaking. Anyways, that aside, the road captains came in on February 18th, and they sat down and they explained to me that one of the truckers had guns pulled on him last night, that the police surrounded his truck, broke his windows, he went like he was instructed just to hide in the back of his bunk, and the cops opened the doors, climbed in, dragged him out of his bunk, threw him in the snow, and arrested him at gunpoint. And I said, okay, so uh, police are getting violent? And they said, yeah, so what do you want to do? And one of them said, I think I, I suggested that, are you saying you want to leave? Uh, like, I'll support you, whatever you want to do. Just tell me what messaging we need to put out, because you guys got to be careful, and I want people to be safe. I don't want anybody to get hurt. This is getting crazy what the government's doing. And a couple of them said, yeah, it's time to leave. The first person, believe it or not, was Bridget, the most feisty, as we know through, throughout the thing. She said, yeah, I think it's time to leave. And then Joe Jensen was the next person to say, yeah, it's time to leave. Because they're all sitting on my bed and Johnny behind me. There was I don't know, maybe 20 of them in the room. This wasn't said, what people signed up for. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. We didn't sign up for the government getting violence on us. So I said, OK, so if you're going to leave. Then if that's the, the consensus and they all said, yeah, let's time to leave. I said, great. I'm going to start putting messaging out. You all call you liaison officers. I didn't have one because I was never on the ground, which is also why I was never arrested. Um, although I got close, <laughs> but. And you did get uh, the account tried, freeze. Well, no, but was dealing with potential warrants and stuff like that. like that. I haven't even got into that too much in the book. Um, so they uh, said, call your liaison officers try to reach out to the trucks tell everybody we're gonna leave the government's lost its mind getting violent we've made the point and we won which was a conversation i had with Jordan peterson the night before yeah on the 17th we did the uh podcast together so we discussed that on the 17th and he, he echoed that sentiment and miranda in fact said to me who's still on the board she said but ben she said, <laughs> she's so adorable she stands up from the bed she says but ben these truckers are not going to want to leave and i said i know i know miranda that's why you're a leader. You've got to inspire them. You've got to encourage them that we've won this battle and we've got to leave so nobody gets hurt. And uh, just, and if you need help communicating to them, I'm stuck in a wheelchair, but I'll get on the phone with, everybody, with anybody who wants to because I don't want them. Uh, I know they're going to they're gonna adopt the martyr uh, sense, uh, the martyr syndrome, and we can't have that. We can't have people getting hurt. And so they left. Um, So you left. They said, okay, and everybody started, you know, scrambling around. I'm going to call this person, whatever. They went up. I said, go up to the boardroom on the 16th floor, I think it was, and I'll meet you up there in a few minutes. Start calling your liaison officers. Let's all have a group call. Tell as many people as possible. And I went on to uh, Twitter either before that meeting or after that meeting. I'd have to check the timestamp. And I put a tweet out. And my mistake was I should have done a multi-thread tweet, tried to squeeze everything into one tweet, but so much was going on. It was a little bit chaotic that day. And I said, many of us are leaving Ottawa. I was, what should I, I was trying to fit in the road captains and truckers are leaving, but I couldn't fit it. That's why many fit. Um, the police are getting violent, something to that, that, uh, that messaging, and we're going to be leaving. And then I see Ezra Levant retweets it and says, "You looks like you ran. It's like, oh my God, Ezra. <laughs> like, anyways, people jumping to their, their own conclusions is really frustrating. So that's how well, we- I, I, mean, I think then, hold, hold on, people have been hearing
0: there. the term hold the line. And I, and I guess that was why it was easy for people who were outside. Yes. I mean, look, I was pepper sprayed covering it. So I know it was know very hairy there. I think it was easy for people outside of that to not understand what the stakes were if you were just going to sure. stand there.
1: For sure. No, 100%. And then, in fact, you know, after I came down from the meeting room upstairs, the hotel room was paid until the end of February. So I figured, okay, I'll stick around. I'll do media for the next, you know, week, couple of weeks, whatever it was, week and a half. And everything will be, I'll be able to button everything up. I had a a podcast scheduled with Barry Weiss uh, that night that I ended up doing, but never saw the light of day. I'm not sure why. And um, then Keith Wilson called me and says, BJ, you got to leave. Why are you going to leave? I got to leave. Said, well, the police are arresting. They arrested Sarah. They arrested Chris. And I think even even Keith would, despite friction, would admit to this. Um, It's actually not bad legal advice. He said to me, "Uh, no, you have to leave because um, the police are going to arrest you. And I said, Keith. Come on, they're not going to come into the Sheridan and break down the doors and arrest me. My brother's a police officer. They're just trying to disperse the crowd. I know how that works. But he argued with me for 20 minutes. And he said, no, because if you get arrested, maybe you'll be subjected to a gag order. And then nobody can speak for freedom. That's how how he speaks. It's exactly what he said. And I'm like, oh, come on, Keith. So I said, all right, I'll try to call an Uber. I doubt I can even get out of here. But I do have a friend who lives in Ottawa. In orleans i'll see if i can get there I'll at least get out of the red zone i'll leave the hotel but you know, i have to be in ottawa anyways to get my cast off and who know, knows what else is going to happen so i can't just leave ottawa he said well leave the hotel and uh, let me know what happens and so i left and i was in an uber i'm listening to the radio and then they say my name <laughs> i said to the uber guy hey can we change the radio station but it was crazy man it was like what i imagined Tehran would be in a snowfall because every street was a police cruiser with three or four officers standing around looking inside cars and like, OK, I'll put my hood on. And just like I didn't know if how, ser- how serious this was. And, uh, and that's how we all left. So we all decided together, the road captains that brought everybody to Ottawa, uh, decided this is where people are going to get hurt and we can't have this. We have to leave. Well, you got out, you lived to tell the tale, both literally
0: and figuratively. Uh, the book is Honking for Freedom, the Trucker Convoy that Gave Us Hope. The author is Benjamin Dichter. And I think you know better than anyone else. You're uh, somewhat of a controversial figure in Canada, but I know you've always Absolutely. relished that. I'm just the new guy, I don't <laughs> get it.
1: <I'm> <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks very
0: much for, uh, for coming on. Uh, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the cryptocurrency stuff. Sorry, the Bitcoin stuff. I was corrected and I said I would get it Bitcoin. right. Bitcoin. Uh, and you'll know there's very a, a fantastic chapter about that in the book, and, and we'll happily talk about it in the future as well. Benjamin, also, thanks so in, much.
1: In Jordan Peterson's endorsement, you'll notice he refers to him as the then Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So let's hope that. <laughs> yes, true. perhaps
0: a bit of optimism from uh, Professor Peterson there. All right, thank you, my friend. Good to talk. All right, to right. You. thanks a lot, Benjamin. That is Benjamin Dichter, author of the book Honking for Freedom. And just lest anyone be unclear on this, the whole point is that I want all of these perspectives told. I mean, when I released my book, I didn't take the view that I wanted to be the the be-all and end-all. I said I wanted more people telling these this story. So I'm glad uh, Ben has his book out. Uh, Tom Marazzo, who we were speaking about, has a book coming out in February as well. And I don't take uh, you know, I've, I've had Tom on the show uh, a couple of times as well, so I'll uh, have him on for that as well. But I, I I I think it's important to hear all these different perspectives because this was a a watershed moment in Canadian history and I think a very important one, and and certainly as uh, Canadians, I think we all are invested in this story, and I know the True North audience is as well, and we're coming up on the one-year anniversary, uh, believe it or not. It's been been almost a whole year since that first convoy set out from Delta, British Columbia, on, I think it was January 23rd of 2022. That does it for us for today. We'll be back with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Before you know it, this is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good